Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my co-host, Gabe Gums. Gabe, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, man. I like the pink shirt. It's popping out. You, Confidence. You need, you need fuchsia. It's, it's clearly fuchsia. Fuchsia. <laughs> fuchsia. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have a, an awesome show today. Really excited. We have Michael Overlander here. He is an author of his newest book, actually, called Global CISO, Strategy, Tactics, and Leadership. Michael, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you, Cam, and thank you, Gabe, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's good to talk to you again, Michael. Same here. Long time, but this is great. It's been a while. Yes, indeed. Michael, why don't you just open up the show with telling us about yourself? And I know you and Gabe have a history, but uh, we'd love to learn, you know, where you came from and how you are coming out with your second book. Right. Well, uh, good question. I, I can say I I think I'm a strategic visionary, right? I am a physicist by trade, um, have a master's of science from an Ivy League ranking university over in Europe, uh, Heidelberg. And uh, I'm a technology leader, business executive, a career CSO, and a well-experienced uh, global cybersecurity subject matter expert, I would say, right? Multiple books and articles and conference talks and moderating and panelists and all that. So I love security. I love cyber. I do this for more than 20 years. I do IT since more than 30 years, but security is my main focus. And um, I'm also, I think, a smart but humble individual. That's important, humble, right, being right attitude there. And then last but not least, I'm a father of three wonderful girls and a loving husband. So oh, wow. <laughs> I grew up actually in uh, in Europe. So my, my accent is from Germany, but I live in the States since uh, 2005 and uh, love it to be here. That's me in a nutshell. Um, what else can I answer? <laughs> no, that's awesome. I think it's just excited to have you on and, and just ready to dive into a little bit about your book. And I'm sure you're excited to talk about it. So why don't why don't we go from there? Because I, I know I'll have more personal questions because of where you're from, and I'd love to to learn a little bit more about you as well. So let's talk about your book, Global CISO. Yeah. So the the second one that I just published in, earlier this year in February on Amazon, uh, it's now out there. Um, as you said, the title is Global CISO. It's uh, basically a big uh, thick textbook, 300 pages and lots of text, but also lots of pictures and diagrams and tables and formulas and so forth to really make sure that the subject is really transferred and transported to the reader, right? And it is an update and a, a second version, so to speak, from my first book. That was uh, CISO and know what, how to strategically secure um, by design. And I think it's important to have an update after a couple of years. The first one went live, I think, in 2013. This one is now in 2020. There's several years in between. And I wanted to make sure I deep dive, right? The first one is the pocket guide that you can take with you and easily. Uh, the new one is uh, actually I have it here. I don't know if it comes across on the camera. <laughs> but it, it does. Quite big. <laughs> and uh, as I said, thick and uh, has all the meat to it. And I go into details and I give examples and I really want to educate the, the readers about the various 
kind of controls the various stages that you have to go through and as a CISO, what to do and what not to do, right? That's important advice for people that take on that role. And the first one you can read in an afternoon or two, but the second one takes some more time and uh, definitely a lot of details, a lot of links to the internet, to certain pages where you can do more deep dive if you want to. So pretty much the, whatever you call it, the almanac or so. You mentioned, so, so the first book, uh, full disclosure, I've read, I've read your books. Um, and the first one was, you're right, very much a pocket guide, kind of a light read. And one of the things I liked about it, the title, you know, CISO and now what? You know, there were a lot of folks that found themselves in that position for the first time. And not just individuals, but organizations found themselves with a CISO in the organization for the first time, which I've met some folks that were first-time CISOs in an organization that had a first-time CISO, and, and there's a lot of interesting challenges in that world. And so your Now What book kind of sets the stage for, for that person. And so this book now dives deeper. And so what would you say is the biggest difference? If, from, if someone who had read that first book back in 2013, 14, or even today, and they're now in that role, what do you think they what do you think they're going to take away from the second book at this point? Great question. And yes, it's as you said, right? And I can say and add that I have been the kind of first CISO in all my companies that I work for. And I have done this numerous times. I know really this works and how it works. And that is why I wrote the first one. I wanted to make sure that the people that have that opportunity or that situation that they know how to do it. And um and the second one, I have now prepared a lot of the need, right? In the first one, when I said you need to do like an architecture, security architecture, or you need to do strategy, a program plan, or you need to do um, a risk assessment, or you need to do privacy and so forth. I, I made a few statements, high level statements, and then it is up to the reader to find it out. Now with the new one, there is, all, I would say, all the details, as, as much as you can fit into the 300 pages, all the details is there. It's really, in my view, structured well. It comes across easy to digest, despite of the depth and the, the kind of complex uh, matter. But it is really a guide and helps the people understand. Like if you go to, let's say, university and you would study cyber, this is how you do it. And But for a CISO, right? This is how you do it. Okay. So uh, a detailed roadmap maybe is, is a good way to, to, to yes. synthesize that. So I show up day one on the job. I've got your book under, under my arm. I'm still not a good CISO yet, though. So what, what makes a good CISO? That's a great question. And um, maybe there is no, no right or wrong answer because it's highly subjective. I, I find in my humble opinion, and I say this with a seven times career CISO uh, lifetime, um, each organization, and I mean it, each organization is at a certain level of, of risk, of maturity, of their leadership, and has a certain reasoning like when and actually if and when and, and why they need a CISO, right? And then they look for that kind of person that would fit in. And a strong CISO, in my view, is someone that is really willing to come in and honestly assess the situation, present them the facts and the findings that are there, and then work uh, to support, to to obtain the support from the board and the C-suite, the CEO and the C-suite, and then agree, hey, this is the, the kind of key steps. This is our risk appetite, the tolerance. This is where we really need to address something. And then basically build a strategic program plan. And then afterwards, he or she needs to focus on the execution and achieving the, the necessary steps and, and milestones to bring the company and organization to that level that we have defined. And that's our, that is way much easier said than done. <laughs> There's, that's politics and changing priorities and new initiatives and 
misunderstanding sometimes and wrong focus on quick and cheap and dirty and all that creates a perfect breeding ground for data breaches. And that is why we are reading it in the press each day, right? And so it's it's really a challenge to to execute that. And I think a good CISO is able to do that and is able to drive that forward against all the odds, against all the different variables and parameters and changes that are popping up every single day. And so it's a it's a really challenging role. And there is not a perfect person. I would say it takes a different kind of character in certain aspects, how you treat people, how you communicate. You need to be a very strong communicator at multiple levels, like a translator, able to deep dive if necessary, but also able to speak both speech and uh, keep it at a high level, right? Uh, focus on business and, and certain risk and finance and so forth. And that's definitely an issue for many people that grew up in technology and that had to learn that. That's that's a challenge. And um, then it's also important, in my view, that a good CISO is really, um, if necessary, taking a stance and fighting for what is right. And uh, many people are yesayers, but that's not good. So you need to be careful and you need to be really willing to take uh, to do what it takes to move the company forward and to make certain clear statements, certain commitments. And um, it is not easy to to win that battle all the time, but it is important to to focus on that and keep your integrity high. And if you see, hey, there's not, not, not enough support and you have tried everything that you can, then sometimes it's time to say, okay, guys, uh, that's it, right? So that, that kind of character, I think, is good and drives security for the, for the industry really forward and helps the organization to to really make a robust cybersecurity program and actually save money, right? <laughs> That's another thing that many companies don't understand. If you do security right, it's actually making more money, it's it's more strategic, but you need to take a full picture, right? The full total cost of ownership and honest assessment and the full, full do we really spend the money at the right places? And if we do certain things quick and dirty, we add up to the technical debt, right, over time. And that's not smart. So it adds cost and if you put all that together in basically the bottom line, then you come to that point that you realize security. And if you do it right, that security actually makes the business more effective, more efficient, and more secure. I, I hope that answers what you're looking for. It, it, it does. And then some, and, and it, it actually prompts another question, one that I've asked myself. I know the answer for myself, but, but maybe you can help our, our listeners as well. So I've personally been in, in the information security business for almost 20 years at this point. And the early part of my, my career, early in middle, I'd say, you know, very heavily focused on, on the practitioner side of things and building programs and so forth. And it, it could have easily taken a turn toward uh, CISO at some point, right? But I had a revelation a number of years ago that, you know, I just don't think this is for me. <laughs> like that career path is for me. So you you very articulately laid out what makes for a good CISO. But I think the other question that our listeners may want to ask themselves or are asking themselves, some of them is, you know, is this is this a career path that I want to to take on or continue on? And so my question to you then is, you know, what what do I ask myself to really ascertain like, yes, this is for me. I picked up your book. I love, I read it. I loved it. I'm, I've been in security for a while and I'm thinking I want to make it to that leadership's, you know, ne- next level. What should I ask myself? Cause it's not an easy job. Good question. And it's not an easy job. I agree. Um, you need to have this kind of deep willingness, deep commitment. And from a character perspective, integrity is the number one, right? You need to have full integrity and then you need to have very strong, or you need to learn quickly, very strong communication skills. And what I think is important, you need to be able to translate, right? 
um, there are some things, unfortunately, that are only from the business side and they have no clue about the technology. That is not a good CISO in my view, because you really need to know what you're talking about. And if someone from the security team or technology team or so forth is challenging you or is asking, hey, why are we doing that? You need to be able to translate that from C-suite down to the details, if necessary. Uh, speak TCP IP, right? You speak about bits and bytes. Tell the people, this is why. And here's the attack type, and this is why I want to focus on that, so forth. And then a lot of logical reasoning is important, like um, being able to persuade others because security is highly subjective and highly complex. And uh, people with different backgrounds quote, and I mean this, uh, I just tell you, they don't get it. You need to find ways to, to persuade them, to make them first understand why, and then persuade them what you are supposing, what the kind of program should look like while you are doing it. And then by basically laying out the facts and getting them to the same level of knowledge when, when they disagree, get them to the same level of knowledge, and then over time build that kind of relationship and commitment, and then you can deliver. So if you have that capability as a person, if you bring that to the table, not necessarily in all the fine arts and details yet, but at least from a, from a round perspective, then you are good for that position. But if you can't take that kind of strong communication, willingness to go every step necessary, uh, then maybe not. That That's uh, my answer to that. So, so I've got one more, and then I'll let Cam jump in here. Because you, <laughs> you, you talked about strong communication skills, and you also mentioned to kind of get everyone on the same page. And communication is always one of the hardest things we do in business. In security in, in, in particular, though, a large part of your job is proving a negative. We were not breached. We didn't get, you know, fine, et cetera. How do you build consensus around proving a negative value to the business. Yeah, great, great point. So what I do is I assess the organization. So I, when I come in, I assess the company and then I continuously assess the company. I use trusted third party providers that do that for me and um, needs to be a lot of things taken care of like NDA signed and certain behaviors and so forth. And then I consistently and continuously present the situation to the C-suite, to the board and if necessary to certain groups or um, parts of the organization or the business. right? So um, doing that all the time and proving that what you are telling them is actually that the fact this is the case and this is how the hackers see the, the, from the outside world or if they are already inside, this is what they see and what they can do. Um, yeah, this is, I think, building credibility. And then another thing that is important is because you said proving the negative. Um, you, you still need to assume breach from the get-go. You need to think like the company has been breached. What do I do about it? So you need to have a very good very well tested and very well and updated and continuously approved um, incident response plan that you tabletop exercise to the maximum and that you are really ready if something is happening that you have it under control quickly. That builds a lot of credibility and that then enables your program for further investment and for further changes that come out during the incident handling. Hey, we are, we are missing that capability. It's important to do, and maybe you put that then in the next year, the year after uh, budget plan, and if necessary, even out of budget, you get the necessary support and funding from the C-suite or from the board, and that you can do it right away. I want to go back, just before I go to my next question, I want to go back to being a good CISO. You'd mentioned something about uh, technology guys having struggles when they get into a position like this, and I think I know what you mean by that, like, in a sense, because sometimes technical people or they can maybe struggle with communication or um, their personality isn't about people. 
Mm-hmm. So would you say that being a, a people person, a very personable type of CISO is the better way to go to be more successful? I think yes. So I want to be clear. As I said also to, to Gate just a minute ago, it's important from a CISO perspective that you really have deep dive technology skills, right? If you only have the business side, that's great for some time, but then you, you yeah. really struggle. And the same goes from the other side. If you're only a technology person, and you can't communicate to the business about the value, about the company, about the business, the value, that the brand and so forth. That's, that's not good either. And I think you need a good combination of both to be successful. It is absolutely like absolutely necess- necessary or uh, the necessity to be a people person that you are able to adjust and adapt to your peers, partners, communication, um, executive and so forth, right? You need to be relatable. You need to be trustworthy. You need to be um, seen. Approachable. And, right? <laughs> you, are, you are part of the person. You are not only having a seat at the table, you actually have a voice at the table and they trust you for what you are saying. And, and that to build takes a different methodology than someone that, and let's be, let's be honest, a lot of technologists, uh, they are not in the best manners. They are communicating weirdly. And that is not... The, the type of person that will be successful, honestly, right? They need to adapt. They need to change. How, how difficult do you think it has become right now for people that are stepping into a CISO job or a new company, if they're stepping into the CISO job uh, during this pandemic, what kind of a challenge are they facing right now compared to before? Good question. And I think there is, as I said earlier, every situation, every organization is different. So it depends what this organization is doing and how they were positioned in, in the past before this pandemic happened. So I think there are a couple of things that the organizations need to do to um, to be ready for it. So you need, and I say this intentionally, you need still in the 2020s, you need a soberly defined perimeter and you also need a well-defined cloud space, right? You need to know what kind of clouds you have. And you need to make sure that the endpoints are really secure because they interact with both if you have a hybrid environment, which most companies do. And you need a very strong uh, multi-factor authentication and identity access management. Right? And communication lines between those different systems need to be encrypted. So you need to have a very robust, very good uh, VPN solution. And then the people, right? They need to be educated and trained and, and more than just made aware. They need to be really trained. And um, that's definitely a challenge in many organizations because they slash the training budget or they slash mm-hmm. the education fees. And that's not smart, right? From a strategic perspective, you want to have smart people that are really trained. They know what they're doing. Policy and awareness training is just one step. Regular education, like updates and user-centric support model is key. Users want, honestly, regular users, doesn't matter if this is finance, sales, uh, marketing, um, HR, it doesn't matter. The normal users, they want to actually do the business. They want to perform their, their duties that they have in their job roles. So security need to support that and make this as easy and, and at the same time as secure as possible. And by automating and making transparent certain processes for security, you can do the support there and really deliver a lot of business value. And some companies for this COVID-19 thing were ready and some were scrambling. And that basically is the issue and where they were coming from. In, in my last role, I had actually rolled out right a few weeks or months before the, the COVID hit, uh, in my view, the best endpoint security control on, on all the desktops and all the endpoints, all the laptops. And so um, it has really helped and there was no impact from, from that perspective. A lot of things were under control. And yes, we had to turn up a little bit the VPN throughput, but nothing major. And then made some other adjustments and that. But there are other companies that were really struggling and they had to build that 
buffed up overnight. And of course, they, they faced issues. And in my view, that's an indicator. Is the company ready? Is the good business continuity planning happening? And do they have thought about that? And I can honestly tell you many, many years ago, like 15, 20 years ago, when I was working in my first few CSO roles, I have already talked about pandemics and I had some planning. Of course, at that time, it was like uh, high level and it would never happen, but at least mm -hmm. we had something, right? And, and that is very important to have this kind of strategic forward thinking, expect the future thing. That ability comes over time. If you are really well educated and you do this every day, you come to that point that you suddenly become uh, a visionary or a strategic thinker. You know what will happen and then you build your plans for that. Does that answer the question? Yeah, no, that was great. Thank you. I got, I got kind of a fun one for you, or maybe <laughs> difficult, but if you only had $100 for budget to use on security and privacy, where would you start? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? $100 is not much for, for to really have a good, a robust thing going. Nope. Uh, to, to leverage that effectively and efficiently, what I would do is I would spend $89 on my book, <laughs> buy a copy, <laughs> and it to the chairman of the board. <laughs> Hand it really. I mean, it, I would hand it to the chairman of the board, uh, similar, and and then ask them to read that. And then in each subsequent board meeting or audit committee meeting, I would tell them and give them one of the remaining dollar bills back. And I would say, hey guys, I don't have enough budget. This is not sufficient. I cannot secure a multi-billion or multi-million whatever uh, business with peanuts and data privacy laws that are actually written in the book and certain security controls. They are there and they are there to stay. And uh, a company is facing all these kinds of threats from the hackers and repeated data breaches and incidents should probably make us reassess our risk appetite. <laughs> so that is how I would spend the hundred dollars. But I, I hope it would, would change the attitude, right? So you can't you can't do that with peanuts. You need to have enough money, you need to have the support from the board. And it starts there. Yeah, great answer. That's that's probably one of the best answers we've had to that question. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And, uh, you know, no shame on uh, plugging the book. That's, that's what we're here for. So the, we've talked, we talked about this a little bit offline. Gabe and I have talked about this, the intersection of security and privacy. You know, why, why can't we live without either of them? Like, why do we need both of them? Why do they need each other? That's a great, that's a great question. And I have uh, actually written about that in the book, of course. But in my view, both the... Uh, principles from security and privacy are entangled heavily. And basically, if you look at that, they are two sides of the same coin, right? You, you cannot do privacy without security. And it's an absolute necessity. I, I think that one is quite clear and self-explanatory. But for the non-believers, just an example, right? How do you ensure confidentiality of private data without personalized security controls? If you just put the word like confidential on the paper, it does not really prevent anyone from uh, from unauthorized people to really read it and grab it, right? So right. On, on the other hand, um, if you do only security without privacy, you can end up in a George Orwell 1984 state, right? It's uh, not the place where I want to be in and we should not be in. And, um, and to give you examples, what drives me nuts, right? In 2020, we still read and hear about increase of access controls that are leveraging biometrics. I'm not a fan of that. I think that is a major, really a major intrusion of privacy. And imagine just because you are either working uh, at a certain place for some, for some time, um, that, that would give them the rights to assess your fingerprints, your hand geometry, your retina, and every other kind of biometrics um, data. 
which is really highly sensitive and you can't change it, right? You can't change your, your retina or your hand geometry or anything. If that data is gone, it is gone. And that has recently happened again, right? Remember when you cross borders and you, especially people that are non-citizens, they have to give their fingerprints and that database got them, uh, some of the data got stolen. Uh, they can't change that. And so it's a one-off and you, you can't rely on that for non-government identification purposes. I think it's, it's quite important. And so um, too much security and making care for privacy is in my view, a nightmare and it needs to change. Um, a certain level of, anonymity in an open and, and um, yeah, open and democratic society is in my view very very important and so finding the right levels of each side of the coin is important so you need both I don't want to come into that discussion where you say hey either you do security or you do privacy no, that's not the right approach it's like the quantum mechanics approach from superposition you need to do both you need to have security and you need to have privacy so they are supporting each other and they can be brought together to really get to a very good result. But uh, you need to, to have that mindset that you say, hey, it's not me or them, it's both of us together. That's, that's my view. So again, offline, we were talking about uh, German laws and I was pretty um, fascinated. We didn't go deep into the backstory of it, but I'd love to learn more of you know, how strict those German laws were and the influence it had with GDPR and now CCPA and whatever else is coming our way. So what I can say, uh, Germany has definitely one of the most strict uh, privacy laws and, and uh, yeah, regulations since years. It started very early on and uh, like in the 1970s uh, and then they had first in Hess and then later they had a, a federal a privacy law. And there are also other countries in Europe like France and Norway and others that have that. And the original issue with privacy and um, that you need some sort of control started actually way back then when the, the camera was invented and the newspapers put, pay, uh, put the pictures on the, cam uh, on the newspapers and, and who's owning that, that kind of right to that picture, right? So that was the initial one when these things were discussed originally. And then over time, there were uh, other stories like Second World War and the Nazi regime in Germany and took over a lot of um, the countries in Europe and they invaded the, um, the Netherlands. Um, they then put uh, access data that was at that time already stored in the local communities or cities where they had tracked and registered uh, people from the religion beliefs like Jews and so forth. And then they could easily find them and deport them and later murder them. And that is, in my view, a horrible uh, thing. And the, the Holocaust is something that we have to prevent at all times. And so the learning from that is that there is certain data that is not only personal identifiable, but that is sensitive personal identifiable data. And the GDPR, for example, and before the Deutsche Bundesdatenschutz, that's the German privacy law, has specific regulations exactly for that. So one, to be to be clear in the definition, that personal identifiable information is all information that can be either directly or indirectly via a link or identifier traced back to a person. That's PII. And then you have sensitive PII that on top of just being to a person is about your like your religion, let's say in that example, or sexual orientation or political orientation and so forth. All of that is highly sensitive and becomes or receives a lot of additional security and privacy treatment in those laws, right? And so that is about the history. I hope it, it makes uh, sense why. And there were different countries with different levels. And I think Germany, based on that, that experience, has a very robust, very strong ruling. 
And then when the EU, the, the European community formed over the um, yeah, decades, they have uh, tried to um, to bring that together, to standardize that, because you have 27 different EU countries and then the additional ones, the associated countries like Norway, and you want to make sure that the um, economic area is um, able to work easily together. Data transfers and all these other things shall happen there. So they created the idea of the single market of the EU. And to, to enable that, they wanted to have a standard for the privacy laws. And that is how they originally had the EU Directive 95 first. And then the GDPR was, was even further developed that they had now one standard. It went into place, I think it was actually um, published in 2016 and then it was uh, enforceable 2018, March, March 25th or so, 2018. Mm -hmm. And since then it's there and it has helped the EU dramatically. And now, because of the, the very strong economics in Europe, it's uh, almost like leading and dominating the world from a perspective of privacy. That is how that all came, came together. Does, does that make sense or do you have a detailed no, question? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for going into that. I just think it's fascinating. I mean, we have now 50, like each state, 50 different uh, uh, privacy laws or security laws in all these. And that's actually almost double the, the numbers of the EU countries that are in the EU. And um, we still don't have a really federal level of privacy law, right? There's a few things here and there. Yes, you have in, in some states like California recently that the consumer, California Consumer Privacy Act. And then there are specific industry uh, laws like HIPAA and uh, GLDA and uh, the copper and so forth, but they are in purple, but they are only for specific industry or yeah, businesses. And the problem is yeah. there's no cohesiveness across them. And if I want to take a lot of data and I'm not a formal like healthcare provider or agent uh, and I saw that data, so what, right? And that's not right. So then in my view, that needs yeah. to be a very robust and cohesive across the states, uh, privacy law, federal privacy law and I hope that the kind of experience that the EU is doing and how, how good they are now leading with that example is, is being copied from the US. And I'm not saying it needs to be copied one and one. And we can make it even better. We can take some lessons right. learned from the EU and then make it better here. It would definitely help us because we have 50 uh, states. We, we need that kind of improvement for sure. Yeah, agreed. What, what would you say has been your proudest moment as a CISO or just in security in general in your career? That's, that's tough to put one out. Um, one is definitely when I realized that I have, for one of my first employers when I did this full time, uh, I did a very robust, highly secure, well-designed, state-of-the-art, um, an architect security solution uh, for their internet binding and the internal security controls. That's still all in place today, right? 20 years later, and there was no data breach, at least nothing that was in the press or that I heard about. And it proves my, my vision and understanding of the subject. And I'm really proud of that. It's still in place. Imagine that after 20 years. And another one is maybe um, in, in 2008, I had worked for another large company. And there was a um, zero-day attack, um, actually from the nation state. I can't go into details, but I brought that thing under control in a very short time frame, like, 96 hours and that in a zero day situation when you have no at that time it was more about antivirus solution providers and so forth if you have no solution in place and you still get this under control quickly and then you clean up the mess i'm very proud because it was the company was fighting for the survival at that time and i can really say i got it under control and uh, very proud moment of my career there are different other points but i think those two i would be willing to put out here 
And is there anything, is there anything else that we didn't really touch on or bring up that you'd like to bring up that's very valuable for our listeners? Cause I know that in fact, that we have CISOs that listen to the show, we have people that are in the industry that will become a CISO one day. Is there anything that you can bring to the table um, that would be, a, besides that's going to be in your book, but yeah. <laughs> maybe like some teasers from your book um, that could be really valuable for our listeners? Yeah, so first let me let me rephrase that from my side as well. So the intent yeah. is that I really want to encourage young people, students and others from other industries to join the cybersecurity industry. It is truly a great place uh, to be in and there's tons of work to be done in all places and it won't stop. So this is nothing that goes away after whatever time frame, three years or five years, no way. It's not like a project. This is a long-term forever going program, right? That needs to be there. And I think we can't leave the world to the hackers and bad guys, but honestly, it's still happening, right? It's driving me nuts. Mm -hmm. If you look at how the industry is empowering, not empowering, is, um, is focused on the bad guys, like uh, conferences, black hat, death comments, the court, where you always show that uh, we just hacked the system or we just had another attack tool and so forth. That is frustrating because that's the wrong approach. Uh, that's the wrong incentivization for people. What we need to teach them is actually rather the defense. What are the key controls that you need to put in place? How do you communicate with others? How do you build trust? How do you build the kind of relationships? And then um, secure organizations or businesses all around the world. So that is why I, I've written the book, right? I want to give them something from my expertise. I've been doing security, as I said, 20 plus years. And I want to share the kind of thought process, the knowledge, the, actually the know-how, not only the knowledge. Knowledge you can find everywhere, but know-how you can't. So I want to share my know-how and why I would say certain things and how I would design it and what, what to look for, what not to do. And that they can learn from that and that they are getting ready, especially for new CISOs or people that are early on in their career and they just want to have a long-term guidance where they can look it up again and again. They can read both the first and the second one, depending on the level of depth that they want to look at. And then they, they get ready, ready for that CISO role. And uh, even if it is in a couple of years, they want to know what they are doing and prepare for that. Right? Um, yeah. There's one more thing that I want to say. There's a great saying that I love here in the US in, in English. It says, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make a drink. <laughs> That's absolutely key here, right? So uh, it's up to the audience, to your audience, to, to take those steps. Right? And um, that is why I can share the title. Um, I, let me let me give you the, the ISBN number. It's 979-860-491-7756. And the, the title of the book is Global CISO Strategy, Tactics, and Leadership, How to Succeed in InfoSec and Cybersecurity. It's out there on Amazon, and I have it on my LinkedIn profile, and happy to, to share with people knowledge. And if they have specific questions, I give my Gmail address and all the other things. They can contact me anytime, and I want to make the industry more robust and, and better over the years. Awesome. You can hear that passion from you, and we're, we're glad to, to have you on this and, and help push that for you because it's super important. And um, thank you for, for you know being on and I actually have a couple more questions that, that came to mind. I know I brought up what's your proudest moment, but what, what actually being a CISO in many different organizations, I'm curious if there's one organization that's more challenging than another. I don't know if you've been in quite a few different industries, but do you have any insight on what industry might be the most challenging to be a CISO in? Um, it's tough to say. So I have seen uh, multiple different industries and I can say each industry has its own challenges. Um, for, to, to be clear and transparent, 
it may be from the outside world looking great if you don't have regulations, mm-hmm. but actually it can help. So having zero regulations, being in a completely unregulated industry has its own challenges. Now you don't have someone that has the stick and, and the carrot and so forth. It, it, but the problem is you, you have nothing and you have to make everything you yourself up and leverage standards and best practices and then argue why should we do it for either intellectual property protection or brand protection, whatever. On the other hand, if you're in a very highly regulated industry, you are, quote, out of control. You, you have to do all the things that are necessary that is either stated in the law or in the regulation. So it's very compliance driven and it may miss the point. So give you, give you an example. What I don't like about PCI, and I like PCI generally because it's a very solid uh, standard and has definitely helped organizations to get better, but they require uh, a certain length of password and a certain kind of uh, changing it every so often 90 days. And in my view, that's nonsense, and it should not be there. If I have the assessment done and I say I use, if I use passwords at all, that's another question, but if I want to have a long and strong robust passwords, I don't have to change them every 90 days because even with botnets and all that, you can't break, break it in a certain time frame. So it should have a little bit more bigger room. And that's just for an example that only compliance is not security. It, security is way more than that. So back to the question, if I have uh, answered it or not, I, I don't know, give me an intention there, but if, if you want more details, I, I can go into a different con- uh, area. Oh, no, I was just curious, uh, just from your experience, if you had an opinion on what the, the hardest industry to to deal with when it comes to being a CISO. Uh, I would imagine they all, like you said, have their different challenges, whether it be budgeting or like you said, restrictions or regulations. But uh, I think you, I think you'd answered it really well. I, I think if, if I can say that, I think healthcare is really struggling and it's somewhat like a self-made crisis. A lot of healthcare companies are saying that they only want people that have already worked in healthcare. And I call this nonsense, and here's why. It's the same technology, it's Ethernet, TCP, IP, it's, uh, the, the kind of attacks are the same, and yes, there are some regulations, but you have many regulations, and they are all saying the same thing, how to do access control and encryption and all that stuff. So isolating the industry itself is not smart, and there's a lack of uh, support from a financial perspective, and the risk is quite high, because we are talking here about lives of people, and I don't know if you saw that just recently, last week or so, there was this reported thing in, in Germany, actually, um, where hackers had tried to hack a um, hospital. Actually, they tried to hack a university. Unfortunately, they hacked a hospital and with ransomware, and uh, that was not really done well. And so a patient that was uh, actually planned to be delivered to that hospital could not be brought there because the systems were not working. So they had to drive somewhere else and the patient died. So. That's maybe wow. one of the most recent examples. And it gives you that insight that uh, healthcare is really struggling all over the world. And the risks are the, the kind of uh, threats are the same, but the impact is quite high because it's life, right? It's human life. Wow. I did not know about that. That's that's actually pretty eye-opening just because something as small as like your technology not working causes, uh, you know, yeah. corruption and then causes someone to have the pass away, unfortunately, due to, I don't know, it's just, it's mind boggling, but you don't think about those kind of things sometimes when it comes to technology, especially so. Well, let's go on a little lighter note here. (laughs) 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 Let's, let's go into our last segment. You you don't want to end, you don't want to end on that one? We can just, yeah, let's just, yeah. Put a big X on the screen. Did you grow up in Germany? Yes, I grew up there. Uh, multiple cities. I would call Heidelberg my hometown because that is where I went to school and university. 
uh, and of course I moved around, but I came back to Heidelberg for several times, and uh, that is my original place there. Um, but I have seen many other places, of course, uh, in, in Germany, and uh, it's a beautiful country, and Heidelberg is a beautiful city. It's uh, very famous. M many people here in the US actually know it because it's on the typical kind of Europe trip. Uh, nice castle, nice mountain mm -hmm. view, nice river, and very famous university and other such highlights, right? So it's really good, uh, good, comp a good uh, location. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's just north of Stuttgart, yeah. Yes, it is under thirty kilometers, so it's ah. roughly seventy-five miles or so. It's fabulous. I'm still planning my return trip to Germany. I, I, I need to do kind of an east-west journey. Just start like even outside of, Ger of Germany, somewhere in Prague, and make my way all the way over. It's on the list. 2020 is not helping me though. This pandemic is really, uh, it's getting in the way of a lot of stuff. I would love to go there one day. So, cause I, I, I might, well, this isn't, maybe we can do a podcast tour across Germany. That'd be kind of cool. My favorite beer is Guinness. And I heard that Guinness is nothing compared to how you drink it in the States. If you go to the actual Guinness factory, which made me think, do you have a favorite uh, beer in Germany? That's I do, I do. So Guinness is the British one, actually the Irish one. Forget Irish. I take that back. <laughs> but and I, actually, I was at the Guinness factory one time. Um, uh, this really? Would be, but uh, from a from a German beer perspective, I love the Weizen beer. That's the ones that the big the big ones, right? And yes. uh, there are a few breweries. Actually, they are all in Munich. Most of them are Munich, and I love either Wine Stefan or uh, or Francis Kanner. They are, in my view, the best ones. But each I love the, different. I love the Weiss Stefaner, if if I said that correctly. But that's one of my favorites as well. You know, and luckily more, they sell that here. Yeah, I see more things the pandemic's getting away of. Oktoberfest would be uh, right around the corner. You're right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not enjoying this at all. <laughs> no, well at least it's Friday, like we were saying. So, you know, we're in our homes or offices. So the kitchen's right around the corner. I got a I got a fun question for you. I know you said that you had, uh, you said three girls or two girls? Yes, three, three, three girls. girls. So what, what's your favorite kid's book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's the one that I have read no when one. I was one. <laughs> when, I, when I was a child, I read it and I actually have that book and my mother kept it for me when I was a youth person, kept it for me and then gave it to me and I read it to my own children's book, right? It's, uh, I can't say it in English. Uh, in German, it says Goldlöckchen und die drei Beeren. It means something like Goldie, Locks, and the three beers. Okay. I think it's well translated here. I, I love that. Yeah, that's a classic. So, serious question for you here. How, how many chugs do you think it takes to get to Choo Choo? <laughs> I don't get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, you know how a, how a train goes chugga, 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 chugga. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to ask that. Because you, you you don't know the number, you don't think about it when you're singing it. But you know the do you know the do you know the song? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't. I'm oh, sorry, man. Gabe, you know what I'm talking about, obviously. I, I do. Our our American sensibilities are are uh, sometimes misled. <laughs> I think so. However, uh, the answer is eight. Eight. The answer is eight. Eight chuggas. Eight chuggas. That question might sound insane. But I thought That's it was. Because it was. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm going to go with that. And I, and I apologize. <laughs> if you could eat one food every day for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh, good question. Um, Sorry. No take backs. Um, 
You are allowed to say. Well, I, I, I really, I tell you honestly, um, I, I really love the Tex-Mex uh, cuisine here. Uh, I, I really enjoy it, and uh, I, I could eat that forever. I, I seriously, I can do that all the time. So, uh, tacos, what specifically? Or, uh, oh, okay, tacos. Yeah, you see, tacos or um. You are you are you are being graced with proper Tex-Mex stat down in the Houston area. It's us true. over on the east coast of this country, we wouldn't know Tex-Mex if it, it <laughs> backed into us, pulled forward and backed in again. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love tacos? I could probably eat tacos every day. Is it a sandwich? Is a taco a sandwich? That's a good question. Is it? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't it's, think so. It's missing the, the bread, uh, the, the roll there. <laughs> I think a sandwich, a sandwich has to indicate some kind of rectangular. Well, I take that uh, back because uh, uh, careful. <laughs> I would say a sandwich has to have layers, and a taco is is a folded. I don't know. That's <laughs> how dare you put me in that position? <laughs> <laughs> how about enchiladas? <laughs> enchiladas are good too. Anyways, but are you a fan of texting and all that kind of stuff? Do you text family members and friends and colleagues? Texting? Texting, yeah. No, I'm not. I use texting only very, very seldomly. Do you use emojis, like the smiley faces and the, the pictures? Yes, a few, a few, yes. What, what's your most used emoji? I would, do, I would say the, the smiley face with an with a, uh, eyebrow raise. <laughs> okay. The eyebrow raise, yes, yes. Eyebrow raise, all right. What's your what's your most used emoji, Cam? Oh man, let me look in my lineup real quick. Wow. <laughs> it has it saved for the most recent, doesn't it? Uh, looks like my most my most used emoji is the laughing with the tears coming out. <laughs> yeah, I know that one. And the uh, the eye roll as well use that a lot what about you gabe uh it's an easy one it's the shrug it's it's the ascii shrug though right like it yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah uh, oh i got a good one for you bar soap or body wash i think body wash body wash? Right. okay the right answer well i, I don't know i'm a bar yeah. soap guy yeah. Yeah. bar soap guy no all right that's the wrong answer Okay. We don't have to get too in details, but I'm curious. Do you use hands or washcloth? Oh, I can't speak to that. <laughs> now, you are, now you are breaching the privacy room. <laughs> why, why not that's, both? Why, why yeah, not, well, why not and both? that's the end. Porcano <laughs> los dos. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I didn't think that was too private. I don't know. Well, yeah. Because people have a preference. I've heard that some use washcloths, some don't use washcloths. I was just curious. I mean, what about poofs? Why, why are you leaving out the poof community? Oh, I didn't think about that. that wow. That's also another uh, accessory. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that the same thing with like a loofah? Not exactly. So you exfoliate with the loofah. We don't have time for this. This is. I mean, well, we can break it down. We got. <laughs> Got a few minutes here. See, no, but uh, <laughs> you got your teeth sponges. You got your. <laughs> <laughs> you guys heard it here on privacy, please. We really got private. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and for opening up and, and talking about your book and 
and getting real private with us. <laughs> we, Gabe and I really enjoy um, just all of our guests that come on and, and we appreciate what you do. And is there anywhere that you'd like to, for us to share your social media accounts and stuff like that? We can definitely put that in the show notes for you. And I'll also, I'll definitely put in the link for your book. I think we'll have some, some interested people. So uh, Gabe. Yeah, no, same. Look, Michael, it's always good to catch up with you. It's been too long. And I want to say thank you to the rest of the community. There's a, there is a significant gap in knowledge as we, we move further and further up in our understanding of how to attack these problems. And you're capturing that in, in as much detail as you have, I think is extremely valuable to, to the uh, industry at, at a whole. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, Cam, and thank you, Gabe. Pleasure to be on your show. Really great conversation, and thanks for making that public. Uh, we'll send you the links, and then you can share that with your users and with, with your visitors and site visitors. Thanks a lot. Great, great discussion here. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. We'll see you next time. See you next time. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week, and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that there are millions of other shows, and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>